0: Well, I don't know about you, but Ascension Day really is one of my favorites on the church calendar, one of my favorite days on the church calendar. No, it does not have the traditions of a lot of other big Christian holidays. We don't have parties, we don't send cards, no presents, no big feasts. It just doesn't have those kind of traditions or rituals like uh, so many other Christian holidays do. But it does have some great hymnody, right? I mean, we sang some really good ones tonight. It's got a great color, right? This blue looks... Pretty sharp, doesn't it? Uh, and, and actually, in some ways, the fact that there is no nostalgia really surrounding Ascension Day, the fact that there's no cultural acknowledgement of it, that it's simply invisible to the culture around us, actually frees us from a lot of distractions that we have to deal with in celebrating other Christian holidays. You don't have to put up with articles uh, about the commercialization of Ascension Day. It's just not going to happen. That, that's just not uh, a factor The Ascension is incredibly important. It is definitely a distinct event in the ministry of Christ, and therefore it deserves to be celebrated on its own terms, in its own way, in the life of the church. Maybe one reason the Ascension is so neglected uh, by Christians, not to mention ignored by the culture at large, maybe one reason it's so neglected is because it's just plain weird, really, when you think about it. A man traveling from earth up into heaven. It's just weird. We don't know what to make of it. What exactly happened? It's obviously a really important event because the Bible has so much to say about it. It is prophesied many places, a surprising number of places in the Old Testament. It's alluded to multiple times in the New Testament. There are several New Testament passages that make reference to it and unpack what it means for us theologically and experientially. It's included in the great creeds of the church when they narrate the story of Jesus. They include the ascension in that. But what exactly happened? Ascension is just kind of weird when you think about it. Physically, what what kind of claims are we making? What exactly are we saying happened on that ascension day? How is this different from, say, the Wizard of Oz, where the Oz ascends up in his hot air balloon? So we can get from Oz back to, what, Nebraska or wherever he was from. How is this different from that? I mean, this is a weird fantasy story. How is this different from that? When Jesus was lifted up in the cloud, how high did he travel? If he went into outer space, how did he breathe? And could space travel ever even get you to heaven? If you just traveled through space far enough, would you eventually get to heaven? Or is there some kind of barrier between our World, our realm, and God's realm? Did He have to traverse from our dimension of reality to a different dimension? And if so, how do you explain that? How do you get from earth to heaven anyway? Do any of us know? Do any of us have a map? Can you give me directions? How do I get from earth to heaven? Maybe we should just leave it as a mystery. We should just say this a mystery and leave it at that. Thomas Torrance basically does this. uh, great theologian. But Torrance says, the ascension cannot ultimately be expressed in categories of space and time. Okay, maybe that's true. I'm I'm sympathetic with that in some ways. But the thing is, the biblical accounts do speak in terms of space and time. They use space and time language to describe this. They say it happened 40 days after the resurrection. There's your time marker. And clearly, we're to understand this as some kind of some kind of bodily movement from a specific place on earth outside of Jerusalem to a specific place in heaven, the throne that is at the Father's right hand, whatever that means. Jesus still has a body. Jesus still uh, inhabits a body. He's still the incarnate one. That body occupies space. Where is it, and how did it get there? Well, it may be hard to fathom exactly what happened at the ascension, how Jesus got from here to there, We have to insist on the reality of this event. You cannot reduce the ascension to mere symbolism or myth or legend. This is a real historical event. Every bit as real as his birth into the world, his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day. This is a real historical event, even if we cannot fully grasp it or explain it. Jesus really ascended from earth. He was really taken up in that glory cloud to heaven. He really did enter heaven 40 days after his resurrection. He really is seated at the Father's right hand. Whatever mysteries are involved in the event of the ascension, we are not left in any doubt as to what it means. In fact, Scripture shows us in all kinds of ways what it means, and you really can't even exhaust. I certainly won't in this sermon. But you can, you can certainly see at least that the ascension has liturgical political, and even cosmic meaning, liturgical, political, and even cosmic significance. Jesus ascends into heaven to his father, as he says in John's gospel, to prepare a place for us, to gain for us access to the heavenly sanctuary so that we can go where he is. He's blazing a trail for us, going ahead of us as a kind of heavenly pioneer, going into this new territory for man to enter into so that we can go there as well. The ascension is a liturgical event. It, 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 Jesus, we know that the, the, the veil in the earthly temple was torn when Jesus died on the cross, but it might be that the actual veil in heaven itself was torn when he made his ascension. When he enters into the heavenly sanctuary and sits down at the Father's right hand, he's unlocking the heavenly sanctuary to us. That's a liturgical reality. This is a liturgical event. He's opening up the sanctuary so we can enter in when we worship. Jesus ascends up So he can send down the Holy Spirit 10 days later at Pentecost. Through his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has made himself uniquely and universally available to his people in a way he was not during the course of his earthly ministry. During the course of his earthly ministry, his presence with his people was limited by space. You see that in the Gospels as Jesus has to travel to be with people. He can only be in one place at a time. But the ascended Christ is now present with his people wherever they go. He is specially present with us whenever two or three gather together in his name. The ascension and Pentecost along with it had transformed the way in which Jesus is present with his people. He was present with us before, certainly. But he's present with us in a new way after the ascension and after Pentecost. As the ascended one, he reigns over all. The ascension is fundamentally political. It makes a political claim. Jesus is enthroned in the control center of the universe at the Father's right hand. He is enthroned over all things, ruling over all things now for the sake of his church. He is subduing his enemies, making them into a footstool for his feet. From his heavenly purge, he oversees the kingdoms of earth, directing history as he wills. So the rising and falling of kingdoms is in his hand. The coming and going of pandemics and economic crashes and everything else is in the hands of Jesus. He is the one who rules over all. Not only that, but we know he intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. He is our advocate, our divine defense attorney, silencing all the satanic accusations brought against us in the heavenly court providing a a shield for us to deflect those accusations. Any accusation made against us has got to get through him in order to reach us, and he blocks all those accusations. As the Ascended One, he is our divine defense attorney, so no charge can be brought against God's elect because the Ascended One is interceding for us, applying his once-and-for-all sacrifice continually for the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is always praying for you, and not to be a great comfort. I know we get comfort when we pray for one another, but think about this. Jesus is always interceding on your behalf. That's part of what the ascension means as well. And again, the ascension means he is king of kings and lord of lords. He has a mission, a mission he will now accomplish through his... Church, as his church is empowered with his spirit and he will fulfill that mission and he will have the nations he purchased as the ascended one. He will inherit the nations. He will rule over the nations. His rule will be acknowledged. Ultimately, every knee will bow before him. His lordship is an objective fact about the world. Indeed, it is the most significant political fact about the world. Jesus reigns. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. That's the most fundamental political fact in all the world. The ascension means that every other magistrate is really a lesser magistrate compared to Jesus. Every magistrate, every civil ruler is accountable to Jesus who is the ruler of all. The ascension means Jesus is Lord whether you believe it or not. And the ascension means Jesus will fulfill his mission. He will complete his mission of conquering the nations, subduing the nations, drawing the nations into his kingdom. The story of Christ, the gospel story, is incomplete if the ascension is left off or left out. While much about the ascension certainly is mysterious, it's very easy to see how the ascension is a necessary part of the story. We just can't make sense of the gospel story without The Ascension. If Christmas is about the sun descending to earth, Ascension is about the sun returning to heaven. If Christmas is about Jesus taking on our flesh, Ascension is about Jesus taking that same flesh into heaven. The Ascension completes the mission of the incarnation. He goes down, but he goes back up. He came from his father, he returns to his father. He came from heaven to earth, he returns from earth to heaven. He took on flesh, now he takes that flesh glorified into heaven. He was born as a baby, weak and vulnerable. He ascends as a mature king, the second Adam, crowned with glory and honor, ruling over all, no longer susceptible to death or defeat in any kind of way. He came to glorify our humanity, to restore man's rightful place. As God's vice-regent and the ruler of creation, the ascension is proof that he succeeded. And so now all who are in union with him share in his rule over all things. He will fulfill his mission. He will complete his mission. The ascension is proof of that. Now, there is one aspect, one little detail of the ascension narrative that I want to focus in on tonight, that I really want to home in on and, and call your attention. To. And it's this. Where did the ascension take place? And why does it matter? Just at first glance, it seems there are several accounts of the ascension uh, in the New Testament, and they're not necessarily all that easy to square with one another in the details they give us. Matthew's gospel doesn't really record the ascension. It ends with Jesus on a mountain with his disciples who are worshiping him, And he gives them the Great Commission. There's nothing there about the 40 days. In fact, it actually seems that the Great Commission is given at the end of Easter Sunday. That's kind of how Matthew's Gospel reads, that you're still on Easter Sunday when you get to the end of it. And so the Great Commission given on that mountain is how Easter Sunday concludes. Mark's longer ending, if you look at Mark 16, Mark's longer ending includes the ascension. But again, it's very sparse. Jesus there gives them another version of the Great Commission, and then he is received up into heaven, and it says he sits down at the right hand of God, and then it says the disciples went out preaching the gospel everywhere to every creature. They were given this commission, and then they go out to fulfill it. But again, Mark is kind of sparse. Mark says nothing about 40 days, nothing about the Holy Spirit coming. There's very little about the location of the ascension. If you go back to the beginning of Mark 16, the angels tell those who are at the tomb that Jesus had said even before his death he would meet them at Galilee. He was going before them to Galilee, so they should meet there. But that seems to be a meeting that took place on Easter Sunday. It's hard to say whether or not by the time you get to the end of Mark's gospel, you're still on Easter Sunday, or is this something different? Luke's account is also very interesting. Luke's gospel says nothing about the 40 days. In fact, by the time you get to the end of Luke 24, the end of Luke's gospel, it seems like we're still on Easter Sunday. By the time you come to the end, it seems like we're still on that first Sunday. The risen Jesus has met with various groups of disciples to show himself, to show his resurrection body to them. And at the end of Luke's gospel, he leads them out to Bethany. And there he blesses them. And Luke tells us he was carried up to heaven. But again... A lot of those details we associate with the Ascension are not there. There's nothing about the 40 days. There are no specifics about where it is other than Bethany. If you didn't know differently, you would think all of this happened at the end of Easter Sunday. That's how it reads. It looks like this Luke 24 just records everything that happens on Easter Sunday. John's Gospel does not record the Ascension at all. It certainly tells us there will be an Ascension, in numerous places, such as in the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, you get a real sense of, uh, of this ascension, that Jesus will return to his Father in heaven. So it's referred to, but John never records it. His gospel doesn't include the ascension. So skip ahead to Luke's second volume, to Acts. Most of what we know about the ascension as an event comes from Acts chapter 1. Uh, now you might ask, well, how do you swear then what happens in Acts chapter 1 with what you have in the gospel accounts? If, if this is what we know about the ascension. Well, one thing Luke tells us is that the ascension happened 40 days after his resurrection. That's where the 40 days come from. There are 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And I think this is what was going on during those 40 days. I think Jesus was coming and going from earth to heaven. I think he was moving back and forth between heaven and earth during those 40 days. And I think this is why he will mysteriously show up. He'll just mysteriously appear to a group of disciples walking down the road or in a locked room. He'll just appear in their midst and then he'll disappear. He'll vanish from their midst. Well, where is he going? Where, where is he spending the night during all of this time? I think Jesus is coming and going from heaven to earth during this time. He's traveling back and forth. I'm not convinced that those ascension events recorded in Mark 16 and Luke 28 are the ascension. I think they are previews of it. And in that sense, you might say there are multiple ascensions with a final ascension on the 40th day. I think they are previews of it. I think he's coming and going from heaven and earth. But what we call the ascension, the event where he enters into heaven and is not going to return from there until the last day Luke records that for us in Acts chapter 1. This is the one place where we very clearly have that. The ascension takes place in Acts chapter 1. This is the time when when Jesus goes away from the disciples. He is not going to come back until his final coming at the last day. And that's what the two men, it says in my translation, I think it's got to be two angels, uh, tell So again, just consider some of the details here in Acts chapter 1. Verse 3, Luke tells us Jesus appeared to them multiple times over the 40-day period, so you get this sense of Jesus coming and going, appearing and then disappearing. In verses 9 to 12, we have the event of that 40th day recorded. And Luke tells us here Jesus was taken up into heaven in the glory cloud. It says in the cloud, what, kind, what cloud is this? What cloud can get you from earth to heaven? It must be what scripture elsewhere refers to as the glory cloud. This is the cloud that led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It is the glory cloud described as God's heavenly chariot in Psalm 104 and Isaiah 19. These passages, and there are others like this, but they picture God riding around in the heavens on his glory cloud chariot. This seems to be that cloud. This event then fulfills Daniel chapter nine, where one like the son of man ascends up to heaven on a cloud. Jesus referred to himself again and again as the son of man. So he is the one who will fulfill Daniel's vision. Actually, Daniel seven, where uh, the son of man rides on the glory cloud up into the heavens. And this might also help us better understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus prophesies that he will come in judgment against Jerusalem within a generation, that is by 70 AD, and he will come against Jerusalem riding on the cloud of heaven. That's a judgment that was fulfilled in 70 AD when the city and temple in Jerusalem were destroyed. So I think we can make sense out of that using this as well. In verse 11, these two angels bear witness that Christ who has gone into heaven, who has disappeared from their sight, this Christ who has gone into heaven will return in the same way. When Jesus comes in his final coming at the last day, he will come on the clouds of heaven in glory and he will be visible to those on earth. The angels here give a promise of his final return at the last day. Then verse 12 provides a really important detail, and this is what I really want to focus on. It says the disciples returned from the mountain called Olivet near Jerusalem. And so here we finally find out where the ascension took place. Luke tells us where Jesus was when he ascended. He was on a mountain, specifically the Mount of Olives, the mount called Olivet, that is the Mount of, So there it is. Now we know where the ascension of Jesus took place. He ascended from a mountain, specifically the Mount of Olives. Now, we might ask, why would this take place on a mountain? Why? I think that's a fair question to ask. What's going on? Well, it's interesting to think about mountains in the Bible. Mountains figure very prominently in Scripture. Mountains symbolize heaven for obvious reasons. In fact, we still use that kind of imagery even in our own day. If I say I I, I went to summer camp and I had a mountaintop experience. I could also describe that by saying I had a heaven on earth kind of experience. That's what we mean. We we think of mountaintop experiences and, and heaven on earth type experiences as interchangeable. We think of mountains as in some way connected with heaven or symbolic of heaven. And that's for obvious reasons. Mountains go up. Heaven is up, and so mountains are almost like ladders or stairways to the heavens. That's kind of how we think of them symbolically.
1: Of course, various uh,
0: religions throughout the history of the world have used high places as sanctuaries. This is a universal feature of our humanity, it seems, to uh, think that we can connect with God on high places. When Israel would lapse into idolatry, they would no longer worship at the temple, generally, but they would worship their false gods on the mountains in high places, and they would make Altars to the false gods in high places. And the faithful kings would go tear down those altars in the high places. But those were counterfeit sanctuaries on mountaintops. The Greeks had Mount Olympus. The Japanese have Mount Fujiyama. The Hindus have Mount Meru. Virtually every ancient religion had its high places. Now, of course, we understand mountains in a symbolic way. But the thing is, in Scripture, we find the true symbolism of mountains. The original holy mountain is the Garden of Eden. We know that Eden was on a mountain. At least a couple different ways we know this. We know the Garden of Eden was planted on a mountain because rivers flow out of Eden. They flow down out of Eden. They flow down the mountainside where Eden is. They flow out from Eden to the Outer Lying Lands. And then actually Ezekiel 28 explicitly tells us that Eden was the holy mountain of God. So that's the original mountain of God, the original mountain sanctuary. But as you continue to work through scripture, you find God regularly performs redemptive acts and gives special revelations on mountaintops. And so Abraham's seed, Isaac, was figuratively sacrificed and resurrected on Mount Moriah. The binding of Isaac's story takes place on a mountain, Mount Moriah. Moses received the law and the blueprint for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, at the top of Mount Sinai. And when they built the tabernacle, the tabernacle became a kind of portable Mount Sinai. There are all kinds of connections between what was going on at Mount Sinai when Moses went up to get the law and get the blueprint for the tabernacle. And then after they built the tabernacle, you see how it really becomes a kind of portable Mount Sinai. And in fact, altars in the tabernacle were actually miniature mountains as well. Moses and uh, the 70 elders went up on the mountain to have a communion meal with God. That's where God revealed himself and where God gave them this special sacramental meal. But as they were on Mount Sinai, just as Adam and Eve were driven down from the mountain of Eden, so the people of Israel were not allowed to go up on Mount Sinai. In fact, they couldn't even touch Mount Sinai just as Eden was guarded by those cherubim with flaming swords. So they would kill you. you try to get back into Eden. It says they would die if they even touched the mountain. They were not allowed to go up the mountain themselves because like Adam and Eve, they were excluded from God's presence at this point in history. Before he died, God took Moses up on a mountain and showed him the promised land that the nation of Israel would conquer. As far as his eyes could see, God says, this land will be yours. From this mountaintop perch, as far as you can see, this is the land that's going to belong to your people. Skip ahead to David. David received revelation for the temple, the blueprint for the temple on a mountaintop. And then Solomon built that temple on a mountaintop, Mount Moriah. And of course, the city of Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. The prophet Elijah defeated the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Carmel actually means garden land. So this is like a new Eden with Elijah driving out the serpent figures, the satanic priests and and, and their God, in the mountain garden sanctuary. It's like another Eden, a garden on a mountaintop, and there are these intruders there, these satanic invaders, And, and Elijah, because of his faithfulness, he overcomes them and drives them out. He defeats the priests of Baal. He defeats Baal in the power of God. It was also on a mountain, Mount Sinai, that Elijah was recommissioned as God's messenger to the king and to the nations. You skip ahead to the New Testament. Of course, Jesus delivered his most famous sermon on a mountain, the Sermon on a Mount, which obviously connects with the law that Moses received on Mount Sinai. It's a new law for the new covenant given on a mountaintop just like The law was given to Israel. The Torah was given to Israel on a mountaintop. Jesus appointed his disciples on a mountain in Mark chapter 3. Just as Moses went with the elders up on the mountain, Jesus takes his apostles up on a mountain. Jesus was transfigured and revealed his true blazing glory to the disciples on a mountain. What becomes known as the Mount of Transfiguration, what Peter calls the Holy Mountain. On the Mount of Olives... He gave his final prophecy of doom against the apostate nation of Israel in Matthew 24, what we call the Olivet Discourse. This prophecy that not one stone of the temple will be left upon another. The Last Supper takes place in the symbolic mountain of an upper room. And after that supper, he goes out with his disciples to a mountain garden where he faces the tempter and submits to arrest. Unlike Adam, who failed his test in the mountain garden of Eden, Jesus in the mountain garden of Gethsemane passes the test by being faithful to the mission the Father has given to him. And then he is crucified, buried, and resurrected in a mountainous environment. Uh, we know he's crucified on a mountain. Uh, it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. But it's also a place where the centurion who is standing by as Jesus dies is able to look across the valley into the temple to see that the curtain is torn. Jesus was crucified on a mountain, buried on a mountain, resurrected on a mountain. He commanded his disciples to meet him on a mountain where he gave them the great commission, which you can think of as their battle plan for conquering the nations, their marching orders. He takes them up on a mountain and he gives them the battle plan for their mission, how they're going to carry forward his work. And yes, as we see in Acts chapter one, he ascended into heaven from a mountain. Once again, at the Mount of Olives, this mountain is the place of his enthronement. It is the place of his exaltation. Really, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus seems to set up base. He sort of sets up camp there for the last week or so of his life. And then it's also the place where he comes back to at the end of his earthly ministry after his resurrection. So why a mount? why did Jesus choose the Mount of Olives as the launching pad for his ascension? Well, think about it. If the other great events of redemptive history and of Christ's ministry happen on mountains, shouldn't this one as well? Shouldn't it fall into the same pattern? Yes, of course, but there's more we can say. Think about this. Throughout Scripture, God gives blueprints for the kingdom on mountaintops. And so it is here. When the risen Christ repeatedly gives us our marching orders on mountains, he's saying, Go and disciple the nations. These are your marching orders. These are your blueprints. This this, this is the, the blueprint for my kingdom. He's saying, this is what the new covenant temple will look like. He's giving them the blueprint the same way David got the blueprint for the temple, the same way Moses got the blueprint for the tabernacle on a mountaintop, on a mountaintop. Jesus gives them the blueprint for the new covenant temple. He's saying, this is what it looks like. This is the blueprint for God's house. You are to build out of the building blocks of the nations as you go forth to disciple them. Just as God took Moses up on a mountain to show him the promised land that would belong to Israel, it is as if Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain to show them the whole world So they can see the whole world from the mountaintop before he ascends. He takes them up on a mountain and it's as if he says to them, as far as your eyes can see and so much further, it's all going to belong to you as you preach the gospel. To every people, every nation, every tribe, every language, it's all going to belong to you. Just as God said to Moses, as far as you can see, it's yours. He says to the disciples, as far as you can see and so much further, it's yours. Go preach the gospel in every land. Kingdom blueprints and battle plans and marching orders are given on mountaintops, and so it is here. And of course, this fits with prophecies of the New Covenant Church and its growth as those blueprints are turned into reality and as the battle plan is executed thinking of passages like Daniel 2, which is clearly ultimately a prophecy of the new covenant. Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of God is like an altar stone in this vision Daniel has. It's, It's a rock cut without human hands, and this rock then grows into a great and mighty mountain, and it topples the kingdoms of the world. Represented by these different statues, the kingdom of God grows from this little rock into a great mountain and knocks over the kingdoms of the world. It's a picture of what Christ's kingdom will do over the course of history. Or think of Isaiah chapter 2, where the prophet says, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted as the chief of the mountains, and all nations will stream into it. Now, Moriah, where the temple was built, was not the tallest mountain in that vicinity. Isaiah's prophecy is that someday it will grow to be the chief of the mountains, the tallest of the mountains. Isaiah says this will happen in the latter days. That's the the new covenant age. The people of God are like this mountain that grow into the greatest of all mountains, the chief of all mountains, and all the nations stream in. Or think of Psalm 2 that teaches when the Lord enthrones the Lord, when the Father enthrones the Son on Mount Zion, his holy hill, his heavenly throne, then the nations will become his inheritance. These mountain mountains, prophecies are fulfilled in the church. Jesus said to his disciples, you are a city on a hill. You are a heavenly hill, a holy mountain. John saw this heavenly mountain city at the end of the book of Revelation, adorned like a bride for her husband. He sees this image, it's really a kaleidoscope of images of the church But one way in which the church is pictured in John's closing vision is a holy mountain city. That's what John is saying to us. This is who you are. This is the city on a hill. You're called to be. I'm painting that picture for you in much greater detail than Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5 when he said you're a city on a hill. Here's what it means to be the mountain city. We are now God's holy mountain just as we are his temple and his house and his city. We are citizens of heaven. We are his heavenly people, called to heavenize earth in the power of the ascended Christ. We are called to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, to make heaven and earth one in Christ Jesus, to heavenize the earth by bringing the nations into God's holy mountain. As God's holy mountain in Christ, we stand between heaven and earth as a kind of bridge or ladder, showing people the way to the Father, showing people the way into God's presence, showing people the way to be reconciled with this compassionate Heavenly Father who loves them and who desires their salvation and who stands ready to forgive them. But the New Testament gives us even more than this. Not only are we this holy mountain, but it shows us in worship, we come to this holy mountain. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. Hebrews 12 says that when we come together as a church, when we come together for worship, we come to a mountain. Unlike Mount Sinai, this mountain cannot be touched with human hands. Indeed, this mountain is the true most holy place. It is the true heavenly Mount Zion. Hebrews 12 shows us when we come to church, we ascend the mountain of the Lord. We lift our hearts up to the Lord. We ascend the holy mountain of the Lord. We come into his special presence and we come and partake of the tree of life in gathered worship. We hear Christ speaking to us from his throne, announcing to us that our sins are forgiven. We worship with angels and archangels And all the company of heaven, joining our voices to the heavenly choir. In Christ Jesus, we have ascended the mountain of the Lord. In Christ Jesus, we have become the mountain of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit,